This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 276, A Conversation with Chuck Dixon. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans, and this is episode 276. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is our Conversation with Chuck Dixon episode, where we uh, sit down to discuss comics with legendary comic book creator Chuck Dixon, uh, who's extremely well-remembered uh, and well-deservedly so for his uh, amazing run on both Robin, uh, Birds of Prey, Nightwing, Detective Comics, a uh, very prolific writer. Um, that comes up a few times in the episode, the fact of how prolific he actually is, uh, as well as uh, he had runs on assorted books from Cross Gen Entertainment. He's also done uh, Marvel books here and there, so there's a lot of stuff that he's done in the past which we were able to sit down and chat with him about. Um, as always, I want to thank listener-supported uh, questions, or w- listener-submitted questions, I should say, uh, from the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Uh, some of the following uh, listeners submitted questions I just want to thank them for. Uh, David Tai, Big Bad, ooh, Big Bad Voodoo Lou. I just realized I missed your question. Ah, maybe next time. Maybe next time if I get a Chuck Dixon on the show, I'll uh, be able to tackle that question. Um, five years later, had a question. Shotzi had a bunch of questions, which I think we got to most of them, uh, as well as Optimus eighty one, and then also um, I believe. Uh, Say Destroyer also had a question as well. So thank you very much for submitting these questions, and we're able to get some answers from Chuck Dixon himself. So thank you for uh, for tuning into this episode. Just a little bit of housekeeping first. You can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate or review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also post in our HC Realms thread as well, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, we have, uh, in our summer interview series, we have a lot of upcoming interviews to look forward to. We also have uh, Pat Zirk, sorry, uh, Pat O'Leaf coming on an upcoming episode, as well as uh, Mike Diodato Jr., uh, future episodes with Barbara Kiesel, uh, amongst many others. So uh, we've got some good stuff in the pipeline that I'm really excited to share. Uh, we have an episode, I think, coming up with Ron Gurney soon. Um, as it's the summer, we're also going to have another comic, shenan- comic shenanigans on the road episode, um, where myself, Paul Scores, and Richard Bryson will wax rhapsodic about whatever kind of uh, comes to mind as we're uh, taking a road trip to see a baseball game in the States. This time we're going to Pittsburgh. That'll be coming up in a few weeks. Uh, last year I had some uh, some listener feedback on that episode that uh, Richard Bryson doesn't know anything about movies or comic books or anything that we usually talk about on this show. So I was uh, chatting with him a day or two ago and he was like, you know what? I've been watching that awesome Daredevil Netflix show. I finally have something to talk about. And I'm like, thank God. <laughs> Because we needed something to keep listeners interested and not just going, oh my god, does this guy know nothing about anything that we talk about ever on this show? Uh, So that'll be an upcoming episode as we do. That'll be, I think we'll be recording it in about a week or so, so that'll probably go online in a couple weeks. And uh, hopefully it'll be a fun fun and enjoyable episode kind of done on the fly, uh, in the car, during a road trip. So anyways, thank you for joining me for this episode. Let's just jump right into the conversation with acclaimed comic book writer Chuck Dixon. Welcome to the show, Chuck. How are you doing this evening? I am doing just fine. So thank you for uh, making time out of your schedule to join us on Comic Shenanigans. Um, oh, hey, no problem at all. No problem at all. <laughs> um, so we have uh, actually a lot of questions uh, that um, we got today from some listeners from the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Um, a lot of, for both, you know, a lot of your different works. So we'll just kind of uh, run through if you're okay with starting that way. Yeah, we can do that. 
Um, so usually our kind of a, our standard palate, um, sorry, not palate uh, cleansing, uh, plate start, plate setting episode, um, plate setting question. Wow, um, is what's your background with comics prior to en- entering the industry? Uh, I just you know. I grew up with comics. Comics were everywhere. It's all I really ever wanted to do. I learned to read by reading comics. Um, you know, I just loved the. I, I just fell in love with the medium, and uh, I, I, you know, was drawing comics at a young age because, you know, I didn't have an artist. So, uh, <laughs> and then when I realized I didn't have the discipline or, or, or native talent for the artwork, I turned to the writing. But. Uh, you know, I always aimed myself at comics. I was a dedicated comic guy. I did a little work in advertising, a little work in children's books, but you know, comics were where I wanted to be, and thank God that's where I wound up. Now, what uh, what were you reading as a kid? As the kind of your favorites? Oh, Batman, of course. Uh, I, I grew up um, on the, the the reprints from the Golden Age, which they were doing an eighty page Giants when I was a kid, and then I was I was there for the beginning of the Marvel Age, so. You know, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, all that stuff. Uh, I love Sergeant Rock comics. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but, you know, there were comics everywhere when I was a kid, so you ended up reading everything from, from Archie to Wonder Woman to, you know, whatever landed in front of you. Now, getting into the industry, how did that kind of come about? Just persistence, I guess. Uh, I just kept hammering on doors and going to conventions. You know, back then you could, uh, it was easy to walk up to an editor and start a conversation. And, uh, you know, getting to know as many editors and as many other people um, in, in the business, you know, pencilers, writers, just talking to them, you know, just basically learning from the ground up. And then, uh, you know, uh, going up for interviews, which, you know, years and years and years of going up for interviews <laughs> until uh, someone gave me a chance. And what was it like writing for Conan? Oh, that was a blast. I, I was working with Larry Hama, and, um, you know, he was a my favorite kind of editor. He was he was hands-off. You know, once he realized that he got a sense of what you could do, and if you knew how to use a calendar, then he, he kind of left you alone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I guess for the most part, I worked on it with Gary Quapis. You know, we became good friends. Uh, we were pretty much on the same page about everything on Conan, but that that was an absolute blast. Plus, it was fifty pages a month. It was a it was a heck of a way to break in. And, you know, that book alone was a full time job for me. Wow. Now, with uh, with Conan, what were, which were some of your favorite Conan stories, and why? Um. Well, I kind of mixed it up because uh, last. Harry said he didn't want Wizard of the Week or Monster of the Month, <laughs> and, and, and so I mixed up uh, historical adventure with you know the the more with the Lovecraftian monsters, you know the the, the horror angle of Howard. Okay, very cool. So I, I do a couple of months where it was straight up historical adventure, and then you know do a couple more months you know where it was monsters and wizards and all that jazz. And uh, now, how did Airboy come about? Um, I I was I had met Tim Truman. I think at a convention or a store appearance at a store appearance and uh we hit it off and i started submitting to eclipse at his suggestion and i wrote for tales of terror so you know they kind of uh, caught on what got became familiar with my work and then when he told me that they were considering doing a, an airboy series i flipped because i loved airboy I, i'd read about it in stranko's history of the comics and uh fell in love with the character just from Starenko's description of the book and then uh, Airboy comics for Golden Age books were relatively easy and relatively cheap 
to, to, to find at, at local comic shops and conventions and shows. So, um, you know, I was able to amass a, a few of them, you know, on the cheap, you know, three bucks, four bucks a piece, uh, and read through them, you know. So when Tim mentioned that the closest thing about Airboy, I was just like, I gotta, I gotta be the writer on that. I gotta do that. So uh, he convinced them to give me the shot, and you know, I guess it worked out for everybody. We did fifty issues, which was a long run for Eclipse. Yeah. Well, even any, well, I guess maybe not as much at the time, but nowadays, any book going fifty issues seems like a long time. <laughs> Especially fifty issues with the same writer. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. Now, with regards to your writing, when you first started, you know, writing. In the 80s, what was kind of your writing style in terms of how you collabor- collaborated with an artist? I've, had- always been re- I've always been real flexible. I, I spent, you know, going up to D.C., you'd run into Bob Kaniger all the time because he didn't have an office, so he just kind of hung out in the, <laughs> the hallways <laughs> <laughs> snagging people to talk to. You know, you'd sort of get trapped on a, in, a, in a conversation pit with the guy. Uh, but, you know, um, he, he gave me a sample script, and it's a script form I still use today. I still use his script form. And he talked to me about how, you know, you had to be kind of flexible with artists. You, you laid it out for them, and you told them specifically what you wanted, but, you know, you, you let them run with it. Now this this is jumping way ahead, but um, it was in my notes as a, as a question that um, a listener wanted answered was, uh, what was the Ravenhouse comic for CrossGen all about? Oh, it was it was our shot at a gothic romance, uh, um, real real like like Victorian uh, spiritual, you know, a little bit of a horror tinge to it. Okay, but um, it, you know, it was it definitely in period in, in the feel of that thing and we had a big reveal about who the her love interest was and all that you know it's just it was our gothic romance uh now um you, you mentioned dc how did you kind of end up breaking into dc obviously you've been with eclipse etc how did dc kind of come about that, that was weird because uh denny o'neill read my airboy stuff and when the idea of doing a robin miniseries came up uh he thought me hey, because he liked the way i wrote a young character um so, you know, out of the blue, he approached me. I mean, that doesn't usually happen. Wow. Uh, and uh, he invited me up to New York, and we talked for a while. And I told him, you know, early on in, in talking that I was reticent about writing Robin because I didn't really get why there was a Robin. And and now normally that would they'd be showing you the door at that point. I mean, thank you very much for coming in. But uh, but he's explained the whole thing to me that the trinity of Batman, Robin, and Alfred, which are what keep Batman grounded, so he's not just a lonely psychopathic billionaire. <laughs> uh, and you know it gives him a family. And and he explained the whole thing. And I said, well, you know, I can see the balance. And then I said, you know, you know, thinking back, a lot of my favorite Batman stories were Robin centric anyway. You know, because of that, because of that that humanizing factor. That, that having the teen sidekick gave him. So, uh, you know, from there we were off to the races, and, you know, I, they, it sold really well. It sold much more than they thought it was going to sell. And um, so I was, you know, locked in at DC for 11 years. Now, what was it like uh, in that first Robin book? Like, what was the kind of the feeling as, as you were doing it? Obviously, this was in a day and age where social media wasn't there. You didn't have an immediate response. So what was it like kind of creating this kind of Bible for this new character? Well, I mean, I was going off of what Alan Grant had done previously and then, and then Denny's instructions. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to break the rules. Uh, I kept it within that template. 
Um, and, you know, I liked what they had set up, which was a character who wasn't, you know, leaping in blindly into the job of being the boy wonder. He understood it was dangerous. Uh, he had different talents to bring the bearer with, um, you know, his, uh, his uh, expertise in technology and electronics and things like that. So, um, you know, it all sort of grooved in, and I came up with a story I liked. It had everything that I like in a Batman story. It had compelling villain and traps and all that stuff. So, um, and and the freedom to use foreign locales because it had to take place outside of Gotham. So that was all cool. Uh, as for you know what impact it was going, I had no idea. I'm just writing a story, you know, and I'm just writing it, and I'm happy with it. And Denny's happy with it, and you know, so we're we're cruising along, and, and it wasn't until. Um, I went up to DC and they told me what the orders were that I realized, Hey, this might turn out to be something pretty big. <laughs> and, um, uh, the first weekend, the first book came out, uh, Tom Lyle and I lived relatively close to each other. So we arranged to do a store appearance that weekend and we're driving up to the store, which, you know, we'd been there a bunch of times and there was a line around the block. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, t- Turned the town and I said, remember, they don't know who we are. They're here for Robin. They have no idea. They didn't come here to see us. <laughs> they have no idea who we are. You know, to remember, it's just about Robin, you know. And because, uh, you know, you kind of have to get your head leveled at that point. So, and then every time I went up to D.C. after that, they'd come rushing out to tell me, back to print. I don't know how many times that first miniseries went back to print. Apparently some ungodly number. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was the, uh, I was, I, you know, I was the golden boy there for a little bit. Nope. DC, because I, you know, they they did not expect it to do the numbers it did. Were you surprised that they didn't leap right into an ongoing series with Robin? Well, the only reason they didn't is I they wanted me to write it, and I didn't think it was ready. Oh, really? Um, I wanted to build more of a supporting cast and things like that. I didn't want to I, I didn't want to throw all that junk into the first issue of a of a of a new monthly. So I wanted to build more of a relationship outside of the Batcave for Robin. And also, I wanted to write a few stories with him and Batman together a little bit, you know, um, so that I had a feel for that. Because at this point, it was a Robin solo story. That's the only thing I had written. Mm. So Denny had me write a, a three-issue arc for Detective, or Batman, Batman, uh, to sort of get the feel of what, the, you know, the dynamic duo was all about. And um, by the end of the, th- by the third miniseries, I said, well, I feel comfortable now. I feel like I've got a monthly here. You know, he can, he can carry his own monthly now. He has a supporting cast. You know, he has a reason for being, and all the conflicts and everything else are, are in place for a monthly. Which of the three Robin miniseries would you say is your favorite? Uh, Looking back on them. I like the, I like the second one with the Joker uh, because it's, you know, in my mind, it's an homage to my favorite Batman story ever, the thousand and one strange costumes of Batman, uh, in which Robin has to masquerade as Batman. Batman is wounded, and Robin has to go out in this sort of. Mm-hmm. They never really explained it, but it's sort of, I guess, an exoskeleton suit, which is what I ended up using. Uh, and he goes, he has to masquerade as Batman so that the, the, the criminals in Gotham don't go wild. Because, and in my story, it was, hey, if Joker knew Batman and wasn't here, <laughs> all hell would break loose. So, you know, he's got to convince Joker, at least for a while. Now, I guess at this time, you were actually doing a lot of different books. You were still writing uh, Mark Spector Moon Knight. Yeah. Now, did you, what was that, What was it like writing Moon Knight? Was that a character you'd enjoyed, or was it kind of just uh, an interesting gig, or what was it? I, I, I always thought 
that he he had a great costume. <laughs> uh, and I liked I liked the early stories that Doug mentioned. Bill Sienkiewicz did. I mean, I enjoyed them. Uh, Carl Potts was the editor initially on Moon Knight, Mark Spector Moon Knight, and his idea was to um, to do away with the three personas and concentrate on uh, Mark Spector's mercenary past. And uh, he thought that was in my wheelhouse, which you know I felt it was too. So. Um, that's what we did and you know basically it was Mark Spector having a lot of problems with people he had met during his uh, his dark year just fighting as a mercenary in third world countries hmm. uh, now I guess sim- in somewhat of a similar vein in some ways but you also worked on The Nam, which is a book that very much you know is way before my time or at least feels that way <laughs> I mean I, I'm not that young but it, like it was I, I was born don't worry I'm not that young but uh you know, it's it's a very different era. What was it like kind of working on that, and how did you get that job? Well, um, Don Daly was the editor on it, and I, I had been work, I had started doing Punisher work for him, and uh, he and Doug Murray were coming to a parting of the ways, and he wanted to change writers. And he approached me about it, and I said, well, I wasn't in Vietnam. Doug was. <laughs> so he's got the bona fides, and I don't. And he said, yeah, he says, but I want the kind of stories that you're doing now in, in the NAM. And, he's, and uh, he says, I know you'll do the research. I said, I still don't feel good about it. And, and he's, so he said, well, what would make you feel good? I said, well, let me talk to Larry Hama. So I called Larry and I said, this is the deal. I don't, you know, they're offering me the NAM, but I don't feel right about it because I wasn't there. I wasn't in the military. I wasn't at, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't feel right. I don't know if I'll do it justice. And Larry, who, who was a Vietnam vet, uh, said, uh, you'll do the homework. He says, I know you. You'll be diligent. You'll do the homework. And you'll talk to the vets. Because Wayne Van Zandt, who was the regular artist in the book, he says he knows a bajillion vets. If you have any questions, you just ask them. So, you know, with Larry's blessing, I, I took the book on. And uh, I did a lot of homework. And I talked to a lot of vets. So, Did you, did you end up enjoying writing it then? Oh, yeah, I loved writing it. I mean, it was a war book. I loved war books growing up. I liked writing it. I loved doing the research, you know. Uh, you know, So it, it gave me an excuse to read a lot of books and then talk to a lot of awesome guys, you know, who told me some incredible stories. But, you know, one of the things I learned doing the book is that no two vets ever agree on anything. So <laughs> there, was a, there was some leeway, a little bit of artistic license there. But, you know, I tried to stay true to, um, you know, what, what Doug had set up and, and what Larry would have approved of, even though he wasn't the editor. I, I don't think Don was as engaged in the book as, as Larry was as sort of an absentee editor. Now, you you mentioned, um, you know, that obviously you have you have a, a stamp on the Punisher as well. What was what was kind of your take on Frank Castle, if you could boil it down? Uh, well, I, I sort of, I love the Punisher, uh, but what really brought it all together in my mind was an issue that Mike Barron wrote in which uh, the Punisher just reveals himself as a total heel, that he's going to everyone who supports him, Micro and the other people who were supporting him at the time, and, and they can't help him. There's something he needs, and they can't help him. And, and his answer to all of them is, then what good are you to do? I'm like, my God, what a creep this guy is. <laughs> you know, these people are risking everything. Micro lost a son supporting Frank castle's war against crime mm-hmm. and the minute that they can't produce for him he's ready to throw him under the bus 
And I thought, this is the, this is the character. This guy is a sociopath. He is really focused. And uh, that kind of drew it all together for me. And, you know, I campaigned to get on The Punisher. Um, I, I, I bugged Don Daly constantly. I was sending him plot lines every week trying to get <laughs> onto that character. And then finally he gave me a chance on it. I guess it would have been interesting that, you know, in the same month you're writing a Punisher story and a Batman story. Because they're both, you know, kind of psychotic in their own way. Yeah, yeah, and I even got to write a story where they met each other and the Joker explained their psychosis to them. <laughs> so that was, that was a treat. But yeah, I mean, you know, Frank Castle's a character that I think they think too hard about sometimes when they write. Um, he's really primal. Hmm. Um, now, obviously, one of the things you're very well known for is the creation of Bane. For better or for worse? <laughs> I you know I like him. No, I like him too. I guess it, it depends on the um, on the time when you're asking that question. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, but you know, now he's a household word. I think everybody has their own Bane in their mind. You know, if absolutely. It's the animated, the animated Bane they were introduced to as a child, or the movie Bane. You know, or, or you know, an action figure, <laughs> whatever. No, you know, uh, actually, um, a total aside. Um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, children are playing with toys that sometimes are not appropriate. I remember seeing, like, a kind of a, a, kid's, a kid version of, uh, of the Spider-Man villain, the Carnage, and I'm like, that's not appropriate at all. Yeah, that was always my argument uh, whenever they were going to cross the line, uh, either break continuity uh, to where it couldn't be repaired or cross the line with the character. And I'd always say, remember, these are action figures. These characters appear on kids' pajamas, mm-hmm. sippy cups. <laughs> you know, let's, let's remember that. I mean, there's a way to do mature stories without being adult, you know. And uh, my, my, the example I always use is I, I, I rarely see movies that are as deep as the average Pixar movie. I mean, you can go to see an R-rated movie that's witless. But you go see a Pixar movie, it's like, my God, the themes they deal with in this movie. It's like it's like uh, David Mamet, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a way to walk that line, and that was always my final thing was, no, you can't kill this guy. He's an action figure. No, you can't do this. He's an action figure. He's, <laughs> he's set in stone or plastic, as it were. <laughs> um, going to so the creation of Bane, I mean, what would... First of all, what was it just like kind of breaking down Nightfall as part of that group of writers? That's a, it's a great group of writers that were all involved in that. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, we were handpicked by Denny, and, and uh, they, he, they brought us up to a retreat back, I, I don't know if they still do them, but they certainly don't do them like they did them then. They could afford them then. <laughs> they, they took us up to some, some estate up on the Hudson River and uh, put us all in a room that looked like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson might have spent a lot of time in. And uh, then he laid out Nightfall to us. He laid out all the dramatic high points and uh, gave us the framework. And then we spent three days blocking it out, you know, issue by issue, how the story would progress and who would handle what. And and Denny's proviso was, as long as you get from point A to point B, I don't know how you, I don't care how you get there. You know, as long as we're all on the same page, we're all doing the same story, and we're all leaving off where the next writer picks up. And, uh, you know, we played well together, and, and it all worked out. But it was a very strong framework to build on. And uh, I'm just glad I got invited to the party, because it was an awesome experience. Now, Bane, what, like, what, uh, obviously, if Nightfall had kind of been plotted out in general terms, um, how much of the kind of filling in on Bane 
really happened or was that kind of your concept or was it just you know there's there's going to be a new mastermind or what was kind of what was laid out and then how did you change it well well the first summit we we didn't know what he was going to be like uh we had no idea we just knew that a new villain he had to be new was going to um break batman's back and um but we didn't know anything about him and we didn't try to name him we didn't do anything because there was so much uh, preparation work to be done even before nightfall began that we were occupied with that and then you know villain x will show up but then he insisted he had to be a new villain because why do a stunt this big and not end up with a new villain and it couldn't be anybody in the old crowd because we needed somebody physically imposing somebody could actually beat up batman and um the only character like that was was kg beast and you know but the, you know, the soviet union had collapsed and he, he was kind of irrelevant um so you know things went along until we needed the character and we had a kind of a mini summit with with um just a couple of editorial and, and two writers and I went on a whole dissertation about how this character would have to be popular for this stunt to work. If we create some lame character, mm. uh, the, the, the fans are going to react negatively to the whole stunt. You know, oh, this is the guy who took out Bane, or took out Batman. I mean, he's he sucks. <laughs> so I said we got to be careful. And I said, but it's almost impossible because so many popular characters are created by accident. You know, uh, how do you create a popular character on purpose? You know, how do you create a guy who has such a great coolness factor that the reader responds to him the way we want them to? And then he said, well, if you think it's so damned hard, you do it. So he <laughs> gave it to me. And, and the only working premise I had was the character had to be the intellectual and physical equal of Batman. And uh, because, you know, Denny was kind of upset that Superman had just been killed by basically a, a, a thug from outer space, you know, a mindless monster. Mm. He said, we don't want that. You know, we want a we want a guy who not only beats him but outwits him. And uh, so, you know, I went home and started thinking about Bane. And uh, I guess Graham Nolan did the original artwork, correct? Yeah, yeah. I bounced a lot of stuff off Graham because he was going to be the first artist. He was going to design him and draw the that Vengeance of Bane special. Mm. And um, so, you know, we bounced a lot of stuff back back and forth. And uh, uh, then he wanted. Venom to be part of it and I think that's what sparked me to think about well Santa Prisca what if he was born on Santa Prisca what if he was born in prison I then sort of went the man in the iron mask route with him it's interesting how as you said how collaborative a lot of it seems to have been which is kind of interesting to hear yeah it's real organic it wasn't like we all ran off you know because you know something like that you don't want to run off in five different directions and then he, then he said, you know, that he picked the writers he picked for that reason, you know, that, that he felt he had a super team. I don't know what he, you know, I was just starting out, so I don't know why he thought that of me, but, you know, I, I played well with others, you know, and I, I guess I handed my stuff in on time. You know, he knew that wasn't going to be a problem, mm. and he knew, knew with Alan and Doug that was never going to be a problem. I think Doug wakes up in the morning writing, so, <laughs> uh, seriously, man, that guy, he's an animal. Um, you know, people talk tell, always tell me I'm prolific. But I've heard stories about Doug. You know, Doug and Stan Lee are like these two legends. Of, um, now, with with Nightfall, what would you say is kind of your your favorite script or your favorite element of Nightfall that you kind of brought to life? Uh, well, I got to follow the issue 
by uh, by Doug and, and Jim Aparo where the, his back gets broken. Um, and, and Graham and I follow it with, you know, Bane throwing him off a building. And um, <clears throat> I always like to think, you know, there's got to be some level of reality here. I mean, he's not Superman. I mean, this would have killed anybody else. And how in the heck are you going to get him back together again when he, <laughs> he's obviously got a paralyzing injury? And um, my, my sister-in-law is, is, a, is a intensive care nurse, and I talked to her about it. And she said, well, you know, there's a drug that if administered within the first few hours of an injury like that will actually aid in the uh, repairing of, of nerves and, and nerve endings and things like that. And so that became the, the crux of that story, the suspense element of that story. Could Robin and Alfred get that drug and administer it to Batman in time so that he wouldn't be, you know, a, a quadriplegic? Mm-hmm. Now, and, that, um, that brings so up... I think that was one of my favorites. I do remember, actually, I really liked that issue. Um, you bring up a point, though. When Nightfall was being plotted... How much of the aftermath was really kind of put together? Was there any debate about what to do with Bruce Wayne afterwards? Oh yeah, yeah, no, we we knew we knew like two years of continuity after that summit. I mean, we we really knew where we were going um, and how long we were going to take. I mean, it was it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Jeanette Kahn was the publisher at that time, and she was at the summit with us all three days. And it was pretty cool to have someone there who could make phone calls and make stuff happen. You know, can we schedule a can we schedule a sixty four page special at that time? She get on the phone, and bam, it was scheduled. So, um, you know, she having her there was like you know a, a secret weapon. So we were able to just effortlessly. Well, not effortlessly, but but a lot easier in a lot easier manner, plot this whole thing out. Uh, you know, two years in advance, so so we really did know where we were going. We knew all about Azrael taking over and and how that wasn't going to work out. Hmm. Now, was um, the resolution to Bruce Wayne's back issue was that always kind of part of the plan, the way that it happened, or was that something more improvised or? Well, D- Doug came up with a lot of the stuff there, you know, that, that spiritual mumbo jumbo that, 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 that Bruce Wayne got involved with, you know, this sort of power of positive thinking to repair his back, um, you know, and that, that's Doug's wheelhouse. And, and so he, he led the way on that one because, you know, we were all, I'm the one saying this is impossible. You know, you get an injury that bad, you're not coming back from it. Well, we got to think of a way he could. And then how would his recovery be? And Doug jumped in there. And, uh, so, you know, to, to, you know, cause it's gotta make sense to us or it's not going to make sense to the reader. When writing, you know, the bat books, well, a bunch of bat books, cause the other bat family books, but writing them for as long as you did, during that period, what was kind of your favorite of the big crossover events? Because there were obviously many. Uh, I, I, Nightfall was I really liked, and I liked Legacy. I uh, was not a big fan of uh, Contagion, or and I was really not a big fan of Cataclysm. It felt more like a Superman story. Really? Was, What's Batman going to do against an earthquake? You know, he's basically running around reacting, which I didn't. I didn't wasn't a big fan of that. You know, I've never thought of it that of, way, but I think you're you're right. It's it's kind of a weird. It's Batman being totally reactive and not actually able to do anything. Yeah, and, and ultimately Batman has to fail in a story like that, which I don't like to see Batman fail. He mm. has to fail because you know you can't. What are you gonna do? He's one guy. You know, he, even the multimillionaire and everything. All he can do is deal with the aftermath. Um, and then I, I I think we kind of muffed uh, the the uh, the villain 
and all. I, I, it didn't, a lot of that didn't work for me. The Quakemaster? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a little weird. Did, yeah, it didn't feel right. It did, and, and, and it was one of those things, I mean, these things happen, it, it gets out of your control, and, and you keep trying to grab the wheel and keep it back on the road, and it just doesn't work. You know, Nightfall, it all worked, you know, mm-hmm. all the way down the line, but... Uh, we kept trying to top Nightfall, and I wasn't convinced that topping Nightfall was such a good idea. Now, did you enjoy like what kind of happened with um, the the No Man's Land concept? I had a lot of problems with No Man's Land going in, too, which is why I guess I was <clears throat> disinvited to contribute to it more than I should have. Because hmm. I was at the initial meetings for that, and I'm like, you know, a lot of this doesn't make sense. You know, um, you know there's other ways to accomplish the same ends, but uh, it was not my show to run. Mm. So I, 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 I contributed a little bit. I did some of the setup stuff, but, but that's about it. Now, we've we've avoided, you know, the, the two of your major contributions as well. Obviously, your amazing run on Robin, as well as your amazing run on Nightwing. Um, which one, just in terms of your own preference, did you th- do you think you had more to say on? Um, that's, that's hard to say. I guess, I guess Nightwing, because I created a whole new environment. I, I mean, created a whole environment and supporting cast from the ground up, uh, which is all gone now. It's all out of continuity. Well, <laughs> so, but I blew so it up before that. All that. <laughs> I guess, the, the, and, and you know, I got to work with Scott McDaniel for you know a long time, and we really enjoyed it. Uh, we enjoyed uh, working together. It was a really solid collaboration. Uh, on the Robin side, you know. It was fun doing a hundred issues because you can't do the hundred issues and it all be the same all the time. So finding ways to refresh the title, um, you know, every year, year and a half, that, mm. that was a challenge. Nightwing, I didn't really have to do that. The fans loved Nightwing so much. They, you know, the only big change I made was having him join the police force, which I just thought was a logical extension of the character. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, now, which uh, which character was like them themselves? So Dick and uh, and Tim. Who do you just think was a, a better fit for you to write? I, I guess I guess Tim was the better fit, you know, because uh, I, I I got nothing in common with Dick Grayson. You know, I kind of you're not you know, an acrobat. Bit of, I'm just not a natural athlete. You know, all that stuff. I mean, I'm just not that uh, self assured. Uh, so I guess there's some of me in, in Tim Drake where you know he would. Um, you know, if he, if he knew he was in too much trouble, he'd call for backup, which not too many heroes do. Hmm. Or or he he'd, he'd wait and let the police handle things. You know, of course that never worked out. I mean, he always had to jump in. But but his thing was, hey, if I see something going down and I know basically I'm going to get killed, you know, I'll call nine one one too. At least I was here to see it. You know. Um, so yeah, I guess there's there's some of me. I don't really relate to Dick Grayson. No, personal I, level. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, a bit of a random question, but uh, what was it like working on the uh, the amalgam uh, Bruce Wayne Agent of Shield book? That was fun. That was fun. That was a that was a neat idea. You know, to sort of mash those things together in, in the ways that they did. But yeah, that that was a lot of fun. Like, I, I love things like that where you shake it up a little bit. What was uh, editorial even like like in that? Like I've always been curious because I was obviously I was just a, a fan at the time and seeing you know these weird combinations of Marvel and DC characters is obviously has its appeal. But I just wonder what it was like to actually kind of create that and what the process was like. I think they just 
you know, they threw the concepts out there. And then uh, you just had to basically, I, I think it was just a phone call. I said, I'm just going to do this, this, and this, you know, you know, to sort of like completely mesh the two properties together. And uh, in a, in a kind of, you know, and the thing was, it, it, all the stories were supposed to be like middle of the run stories with no real conclusions. <laughs> so, you know, you just sort of wrote issue two of a three issue arc. Yeah. You know, and you were never going to come back to it. So, so the, you know, since you're never going to come back to it, the, the inclination there for me anyway was to throw everything with the kitchen sink into the story. And uh, I think the most of the other creators felt the same way. I mean, I was, I was, this is embarrassing, but I was 12 years old when it came out and I didn't know any better that this wasn't a real thing. Like, and it, <laughs> which is, it's embarrassing, but it's true. And I'm, you know, and the fact that, that you know, there was footnotes to comics that never happened, you know, this feel, you know, it, this feeling of something and it was, it was so cool to read. And again, I'm 12 years old. I'm like, I want to read more of this. What do you mean right. it doesn't exist? Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's like, I think. You know, you would think that the writer would want to write more of it, but but the thing is, we all threw so much into that one issue that you know, we had no idea where it was going to go after that. Because you, you had the freedom of not having to worry about that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So that's that's my embarrassing remembrance. <laughs> Just didn't know any better. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I had a, a question about I think Nightwing one or two, which is obviously years ago, but. Whose decision was it to finally chop off his ponytail? Oh, that was mine. That was had it? To go. It went in issue one. It went right away. Uh, it had to go. It was just ridiculous. I thought he looked silly. Plus, you know, if you're fighting people, you know, hand-to-hand, you don't want a ponytail. Well, I always wondered, was that a commentary on the fact that it was kind of ludicrous, the fact that it got chopped off in a fight? Yeah, I wanted to chop. I didn't want him to make a decision. It wasn't, you know, I didn't want him to make a fashion statement. I wanted to be cut off in a fight. It always looked better that way. I agree. Once it was cut off, it looked like it just looked better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it felt more. I couldn't imagine Scott McDaniel drawing him with a ponytail. I, I didn't like that look at all. And so, and then when, years later at Crossjam, when I did Way of the Rat, I basically did an homage to my own scene where where Boone gets his top knot cut off. Early oh yeah. On the issue. I forgot about that. Way. Wow. So, just uh, you know, ponytails just. They don't work for me in a fight. <laughs> um, now, I have some questions, again, from listeners. Uh, what made Tim Drake work as Robin, whereas t- Jason Todd had failed? Um, I think Jason Todd reminded most comic readers of the kind of guy who would have beaten them up in the playground for reading comics. <laughs> that's, that's my take. I mean, I asked, I asked Denny about that. You know, what happened with that character? You know, and he said it just kind of got away from everybody. Um, he just became an unlikable creep, um, and and you couldn't relate to him. And even when they tried to reboot him, uh, it, it, he just kind of was on that track. He went right down the same track again of being, you know, um, a punk? reckless rather than impulsive. And and you know, when you have a psychic who doesn't who rebels against Batman, doesn't listen to him. I mean, readers didn't like that. Hmm. Uh, now, and ha- another question from the same listener: uh, How would you have ended the uh, the Dick and Babs relationship? I, I would never have ended it. I would have just kept it going forever. I would. It would have been Archie, Betty, and Veronica for decades. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, there's there's always going to be a connection between those two characters because of their background. I mean, who else would understand them but mm. each other? So, to me, even if you know, we 
had breakups and maybe you had times where they weren't romantically involved, they'd always be drawn back together. Uh, no, actually, I didn't realize the same listener apparently has four more questions, so he's very <laughs> prolific. <fine. laughs> um, what one Marvel or DC character would you like to get a shot at writing? I would have liked to add a run on Fantastic Four. It's never going to happen, but it would have been fun. Now, what would you have wanted to do with them? Oh, I don't know. Just uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have done anything that different, to tell you the truth. I just try to recapture that uh, magic that, that it had when I was a kid. You know, the, the, the cosmic adventures and the idea. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, you're talking about you know Bruce Wayne, Agent of Shield. When I was a kid, I thought every issue of Fantastic Four had to be the last one mm. because how are they going to get out of this? Mo- Molecule Man blew me away. I was like, this is it. This has to be the last issue. There's no way they can beat this guy, and they totally convinced me. And if I could capture that, you know, where these, you know, this this team that either fights their way out or thinks their way out of every, you know, um, thorny situation, if I could capture that, where you know, convince the reader this is it, it's over for these guys, you know, that would be a, that would be an accomplishment. Um, which comic book run that you wrote was your favorite to work on? Oh wow, that's like asking you what's. Exactly. Kids is your favorite. That's that's tough because I would invest myself in all of them. I really didn't. I didn't not like writing anything I've written. Um, um, geez, that's tough. I guess. I guess the run on Detective, particularly the issues I did with Graham. Okay. Because um, we were both so into it, it was sickening. Um, you know, he's such a huge Batman fan. I thought I was a Batman fan until I met Graham. He knows everything about the character. And, uh, you know, we would have these long conversations about stuff that would never even appear in the comic, you know, background stuff about mm-hmm. the characters. that, And, you know, uh, so we could come to some common ground on how we felt about them. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's lightning in a bottle for me. Switching gears back to Nightwing for a second. Um, what um, Did you come up with, like, the name of Bloodhaven, or did, was that someone else? Yeah, they, Scott Peterson, I think, came up with the name Bloodhaven. He just loved that umlaut. Mm. And um, <laughs> I wanted to call the town Dresher, which I thought sounded really blue-collar. Uh, but that got nixed. They really wanted to call it Bloodhaven. So then I had to come up with, the, well, why would it be called Bloodhaven? So I came up with the whole whaling town and mm-hmm. all that jazz. But it was that was cool. I, I, I started, the first thing I wrote on Nightwing was a long essay describing the town. Uh, and what it had to look like because you know uh, we knew Scott McDaniel was going to be the artist I had no idea Scott had an engineering background and would make that town like the craziest environment in the DCU <laughs> I mean it, it, it was not to I me mean, 23 points of perspective and it all drawn like it's totally believable I mean he, he, he had consistent architectural details throughout I mean he just thought so hard on that book wow. it was a joy it was a joy to get the artwork you know the, the Xeroxes each month and take a look at them uh, what inspired you to use Blockbuster as your kind of big bad? I think that was built in as well. That was built in uh, because Denny and Alan Grant were originally going to write it, and I don't know what reason they backed out, and I they gave it to me with three weeks' notice. Um, oh, really? I had to have a script written in three weeks. And I got so into it that I wrote 12 issues in a row, um, and, it, and I think I had most of those 12 issues written before Scott McDaniel ever put a pencil to paper. So um, I had the whole first year laid out, but um, but yeah, Blockbuster was to be the ba- the main bag. That was the only thing. He was in a new environment, no Batman, uh, no backup, and and Blockbuster ran the town. And from there, beyond that, it was all up to me. 
What uh, inspired you to create um, uh, the other Nightwing? Um, <laughs> um, I thought, you know, you, you get copycat serial killers. Why wouldn't you get copycat superheroes? And um, so I kind of based his personality on Rob Liefeld. <laughs> Uh, you know, guy's trying to do the right thing, but isn't quite sure how to do it. You know, has more confidence than sense. Uh, <laughs> so, I had I, never I've thought of it that, that way. Often enough that you know, it's already out there, so this isn't really a big reveal. I'm sure Rob's heard it. I but, uh, I had never heard I, that before. Yeah, so you know, he's kind of trying to be Nightwing, but isn't quite sure how to do it. Um, what about um, I guess uh, obviously another uh, important character spoiler. Uh, spoilers created strictly as a plot device for a Clue Master story. I thought, well, you know, bring back the Clue Master. He's kind of a half-assed Riddler. Um, he's not that great a character. Uh, what can we do to make him interesting? Because I wasn't ready to do a Riddler story in my mind. Because Riddler's one of my favorites. And I really wanted to have an awesome Riddler story. And I didn't have one mm-hmm. in my head. So let me do Clue Master. And what would make him interesting? Well, what if he had a family? You know, we never see the supervillain. They're all loners. And then I thought, well, what if he had a rebellious teenage daughter and her her way of being rebellious was to become a vigilante, you know, to fight him. So she becomes the spoiler because he's the clue master. So she's going to spoil all his crimes by giving away the clues, you know, uh, in time to stop him. And she was, a, she was just a, a plot device for one arc. And then the letters started coming in. They just loved her. It's like I said before, you know, a lot of these characters get created by accident. You know, Silver Surfer was created because Jack Kirby thought Galactus needed someone to talk to. Um, so, you know, so that, you know, the letters came in and I thought, well, let's make her part of Robin's continuity. They're, they're the same age. She's actually a year older. And uh, let's make her part of his continuity. And then it just took off from there. And then I just fell in love with the character. I mean, I, uh, I just, you know, really invested a lot into it as far as their background and, you know, start thinking about what it would be like, you know, to have, you know, not, not a supervillain, but to, you know, have a, a dad who was a criminal and a loser criminal, you know, with a terrible reputation, you know, what, what, what would it be like living under that shadow? Um, with regards to spoiler, what were your plans for the Robin and spoiler when you came back for your second Robin run? Uh, who, which bat writers of the past do you think would have been your main inspiration when writing your Batman? Um, well, Denny, obviously, the man saved Batman um, mm. for the next generation, and and um, Bill Finger, because you know, like I said, I grew up reading the Golden Age stuff and um, the traps and, and things that he would come up with. I mean, I mean, the um, 
the 66 television show is, is, is a Bill Finger story. It's, it's three seasons of Bill Finger stories. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the format, you know, works for the character. When all else fails, you can always fall back on, on that format. Um, and then uh, Archie Goodwin, as a writer, but more as an editor, uh, he did a run on Detective. I think he was only Detective for like a year. And there's just some amazing stories in there that I have to think. He didn't write all of them. But, you know, uh, I have to think that the, the teams he chose and everything else uh, had a lot to do with it. And a lot of that formulated how I thought about Batman in later years. But there's been a, uh, a lot of uh, – Batman's had some terrific writers over the years. Oh, absolutely. And it helps when he's also had, you know, a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of venues uh, to yeah, get I good mean, writers. You know, you get kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, you get guys like, you know, Alan Brenner, you know, who sort of breezes through. Those do a lot of Batman stories, but they're all memorable, you know, because there's so much material that has to be created. Uh, what uh, what would you say is your, your – now, this is going to be a tough one too, but what is your proudest accomplishment as a comics professional? Oh, man. Wow, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I guess you know, quantity. I did a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Contributed a lot. If you, if you brought me in, if you brought me on board, you know, I certainly pulled my oar. Um, you know, because I found out recently, I'm number three most prolific writer in, in, at DC in their history. Oh wow! Uh, right behind Bob Kaniger and and um, Gardner Fox, and and I've written more Batman than anybody has ever written. So, um, so if you take it by page count, that's quite an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I think. I think a lot of it was good stuff. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I certainly enjoyed it. I never let a story leave the house that I wasn't happy with myself. Although that could backfire too. Graham and I were so happy with the Captain Fear arc we did, and the editors hated it. They hated it with a passion. Oh, really? Yeah, we thought we had written, we had, we had done our ultimate Batman story, a new villain. Uh, it had a trap in it, a convincing trap. And uh, it had a lot of all the elements we thought which should be in a classic Batman story. And the editors loathed that story. They just hated it. <laughs> um, which, um, I mean, obviously you've written a bunch of kind of year one stories. Which one do you think, again, was, you know, kind of your favorite to write and put together? Uh, Batgirl, without a doubt. Just, you know, Robin, that was good. Uh, especially after Scott Beatty and I saw Marcus, not Marcus, um, who was the artist on that? Javier. Javier Polito's artwork. Mm-hmm. When we saw his artwork, we rewrote the first part of it. Because, oh, really? Because, oh my God, this guy's such an awesome visual storyteller, and we're loading him down with talky-talky scenes. And we went back and rewrote it. So that, so that you know, I usually, and Scott does the same thing, usually tell you about the character through what they do and their action. We, we usually don't do talking head pages. But, but once we saw Javier's artwork, we thought, well, we got to reduce even the ones we used. And, and really just keep the story moving along visually and give him more panels to, to, to do his thing with. And then uh, Marcos, Martin was much the same way on Batgirl, but by then we were sort of in a groove. And Batgirl just, it just came together so naturally. It was a, a great uh, melding of, of my strengths and, and Scott Beatty's strengths. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the incredible artwork. Oh, and yeah. it was at a good time for me writing-wise because I, I felt I had all the characters figured out. Hmm. Yeah, the Nightwing got... one, you know, with Scott McDaniel, it was good, but I felt it was a little rushed in page length. Hmm. Uh, I, I wish we had more room to expand it. Yeah, no, I, I, I've always felt that the, the Robin and Batgirl ones were, I guess, what I really, I personally, as a reader, was uh, attracted to is the fact that they just had a, they were fun. 
Yeah, yeah, we tried to keep them light, you know. Um, They're joyful. The back like row the... one gets a little heavy, you know, because, you know, we know what the readers know what's ahead for her. But, yeah, we try to keep it light and, and moving constantly. Mm-hmm. Well, I and, guess... and, you know, we put in, you know, Scott, well, particularly Scott, can't resist the continuity jokes. And my favorite on the back row one is that she ends up attending the same costume party that, um, that the Dibneys attended. In the same issue, the issue where Batgirl is debuted, she goes to the costume party as Batgirl. Uh, in the backup, the Elongated Man backup, the Dibneys also attend the costume party, and I thought, well, they should be at the same costume party. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an aside there that you know is going to go right over 99% of the readers' heads. Yeah, I would be one of them then. Yeah. <laughs> You're still waiting for the next issue of Bruce Wayne Ages. Yeah, I'm, I'm just real upset that I didn't get another issue. I wanted those back issues. <laughs> it was, you know what it was? It was also the letters page was so well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those hoaxes are fun. I, I did one of them at Eclipse where I created a whole Golden Age comic book company. <laughs> I actually had Don Thompson say, he made all that up, right? He wasn't entirely convinced that it wasn't real. Oh, really? Yeah. It was just a commitment to the bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just go all in and, you know, come up with every come up with just enough that seems believable. Um, no, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up in just a second, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you about CrossGen because I remember when I when those comics first started coming out, I was kind of an early adopter and I stayed with most of the books in the entire run of the company. And obviously you had a lot of work with them. What was the what was that kind of like working for CrossGen? Well, the awesome thing about it was we were all in the same building which no one is ever going to do again because of CrossGen's magnificent failure. But, um, you know, to be there with your whole team, you know, and, you know the colorist, the letterer, the inker, your penciler, you know, and they're all there and you can talk and really collaborate, really get into it, you know, to whatever degree they're comfortable with. I mean, some artists were like, yeah, just give me the script. But, but others, you know, and I welcomed it. You know, I mean, a book like Way of the Rat would have been impossible done the normal way because Jeff Johnson's contribution to the look of that book was so important um, he brought so much to the whole field of the book because you know I knew squat about Chinese medieval Chinese architecture and I didn't know anything about martial arts beyond you know seeing a Jackie Chan movie you know I could, I could fake it right yeah. about but but Jeff knew all this stuff and and was a martial artist himself and just really brought it you know and then all the other books I mean we were able to do stuff there we did the pirate book we did El Cazador we were able to buy a, a, a computer wireframe program that would create for us wireframes for 12 different pirate ships oh, wow. they could then be printed out on, on blue line at any angle and uh, Steve Epting would then render on top of them because there's no other way to do a monthly pirate book and have all the ships and all the rest of it and keep it authentic and consistent and uh, you know it was just enough of an assist to really put the book over the top but you know your average artist couldn't have afforded to buy that program just for themselves just for one book and uh, you know there were a lot of other I mean you know we were able to socialize and you know we made friends you know and work at all hours you know it was nuts it's a shame it all failed but it was doomed to failure from the beginning Mm. I was I, I, what I also appreciated and thought was most interesting about that company as well is the fact that they had so many different genres kind of covered. Well, that's what we were. We were a genre publisher, and one of the reasons we failed is because our publisher didn't believe that. Hmm. Uh, 
we actually had a meeting. We were at a tipping point, or, or Gettysburg, you know, where the, it could have gone either way. And um, at the meeting, um, Mark Alessi asked us, well, what do you think CrossGen is? And we all said, it's a genre company. That's the way the readers are responding to it. And, and, and what we had going for us was our earnestness. That if we said we were going to do a 60s spy pastiche, it was going to be that. Mm-hmm. If we were going to do a pirate book, it was going to be that. It wasn't going to be tongue-in-cheek. It wasn't going to be winking at the reader. It wasn't going to be a satire. It was going to be a, a, a real effort at that genre, whatever that genre was. And that's what the readers were responding to. But Mark thought we were, you know, he was into the Uber story, the sigil story. Mm. And he thought that's what attracted readers, which it wasn't. We were losing readers by, by the battalion every month because of that Uber story, because they didn't feel like they could pick up any issue and, and get into it. That's true, I guess. There's And there's some of the books of the line that felt more isolated and they felt easier to kind of just enjoy on their own. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought an El Cazador happened on Earth in the 16th century with, you know, no none of the Uber story BS. And and it was our best-selling book while it was out. And here you have a book. It's it's a historical adventure. There's no zombies, witches, mm-hmm. nothing. Everything, that, every conventional wisdom in the comic book business would say that that would have been our lowest seller. But it wasn't. It came out of the gate strong and stayed that way, you know, until the very end. Because that's what—that's the readers that we had found. We did, we didn't find Marvel and DC readers. We actually found new readers, mm. and 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 that's what we should have kept exploring. We should have doubled down on all of it, but we didn't. And that's it. And it'll never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a blast for two years there. It was awesome. It was, my wife says it was my midlife crisis. <laughs> where uh, where would you have taken El Cazador next if it hadn't ended prematurely? Uh, well, it, 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 if you remember the book, the last issue ends with Lady Sin asking that character's name, I can't remember, our, our Errol Flynn type character, if he, if he spoke Latin. And uh, where it was going to go next was they were going to run into uh, a bunch of seagoing Jesuits, like the nastiest pirates imaginable, who had a hidden island on which we were going to reveal this. <laughs> this would have gotten us on the map, that the Book of Revelation was actually written by the Jesuits in the 14th century. Hmm. And this was the secret they were guarding, and this was the secret that Lady Sitton wanted to reveal. Uh, and and she she was going to entice the Earl Flynn guy to the island because it, being Jesuits, the island was of course had a, a massive treasure hidden in, in the dungeons of its fortress. Wow! But that's where the, that's where the second arc was going. That's really cool. Yeah, it would have been fun. Um, of the cross-gen books that you wrote, which one, I guess, was the most personal, personally fulfilling? I guess Way of the Rat, because I got to create it from the ground up, um, and I won all my battles on it. Um, I, I got to have the, the monkey, the talking <laughs> monkey, which Mark hated until the readers loved it, and then he loved it. He got it once he saw it in print. Um, but, you know, that was a... I think that that book was so different. It was different for me to write, and it was it was different, or a whole different approach to a genre that usually doesn't get explored in American comics. And it, and it was a uh, it was a, an Asian theme book, martial arts book that didn't know anything to manga or anything. It had it's, it's entirely its own approach to the subject matter. Absolutely, no, it's it's a fantastic read, and it still holds up very well. Uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. Plus, you know, Jeff and I, I you know, we laughed so hard doing that book. Uh, <laughs> Because there was one page where, where 
all hell's breaking loose. It's a double page spread. And Popo is simply flipping back toward us. And he's upside down, flipping back. And every time I would see that page, I would laugh. And finally, you know, years later in the mail, uh, Jeff sent me that, that page. Oh, really? <laughs> and I'm laughing thinking about it. Just the way he did it. Just the way he positioned the characters. It was, this is like this Buster Keaton moment. This is funny as hell. What was your inspiration for the, uh, the character of Boone? Um, I wanted, you know, I, there's a bit of Jackie Chan in him. I wanted the sort of affable martial arts guy. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want Shang-Chi. I didn't want some grim guy that you couldn't relate to. I wanted a guy who was a little bit of an F-up and, uh, and you could laugh at, you know, very much. Well, you know, Jackie Chan comes out of Buster Keaton. I mean, he's, he's acknowledged Keaton a lot. So I wanted that kind of character. Um, so the book would be funny as well as action-packed. You know, and he was the guy who was never going to get the girl. Mm. Now, where the rat did that? Yeah, I thought that that was more relatable. Okay, was where the rat again? Like, was it totally a, a, kind of a pitch you came up with before it got greenlit? Yeah, or was no, that... they said they wanted. <laughs> Crosstown was always the people at Crosstown were always coming up with these crazy ideas for marketing. You know, synergy was their big thing, and I, I hate synergy. Uh, you can, you know, obviously drive a business right into the ditch relying on synergy. And they they thought they had a deal with some Chinese telecom company. And they thought the best way to appeal to these people was to create a book set in China. Really? Which was a crazy idea. <laughs> uh, because, you know, what do we know about, you know, what, what do we know about what they want, you know? Uh, and could we, you know, unintentionally offend them with something in the book? You know, which, how easy would that be? And uh, so my first assignment when I actually arrived at CrossGen was, we'll create this Chinese, Chinese-themed book. So, you know, it's, you know, of course, immediately, I'm a Westerner. It's got to be a martial arts book. You know, uh, it's not going to be about a, you know, philosopher or a painter. You know, it's, it's going to have to be fighting. It's a comic book, you know. And um, so I immediately thought, you know, well, what if it's a down-and-luck thief-type character? And they said, well, the sigil character has to be in it. You know, the character who knows it all or, I don't know, connection to the Uber story. And I immediately thought of the, you know, the Monkey King. I thought, well, if it's a monkey. Well, that, that got all kinds of resistance. And uh, I, I stuck to my guns. I said, no, I don't want it to be, you know, some attractive, you know, teenage girl or whatever you have in the other books, you know, or some old man. I don't want to, I don't want an Obi-Wan. You know, I want a character we can laugh at. You know, that's kind of, that's, that's a, a bit of an a-hole. And um, that's, you know, so Popo jumped out of that, you know, an alcoholic macaque. <laughs> and Jeff and Jeff found the macaque. You know, I, I said, but whatever monkey you want to use, as long as it's, it could be an Asian. And he found the macaque and, and sort of adopted, you know, exaggerated some of his features. And, you know, people fell in love with the character. Well, I, for all the reasons you described, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then and then it was my idea to have him answer the letters in the letters column, and that that didn't go over at first until that was the most popular feature of the book. <laughs> writing in to be insulted by Popo. Now, when you came on the Crossjump book, so obviously you, you kind of launched and built up Way of the Rat as well as Brath, which was a, a, a gorgeous book. Um, I guess it was what, DeVito was doing the artwork and his, his, his artwork was amazing. Yeah, yeah, he was really into that. Um, so, And I guess that was kind of maybe launched to capitalize on the gladiator craze? I, I guess so. Um, you know, Mark Alessi, had, he was um, at college. He took all the classics and everything. So I guess he wanted a book set in an actual classical world. 
You know, so it was kind of our Hercules or our Conan. Yeah, I got in trouble on Brath because he was he was hairy. And Andrea and I um, had discussed a lot about Brath and that we didn't want to look like Conan. We didn't want to look like, you know, a weightlifter from Mars. Uh, so we, we talked about what his body structure and stuff would be like. That this is a guy who, whose, you know, musculature was built from fighting and hard work and things like that. So he's a lot leaner than, than some of these characters. And we also wanted him to have body hair. And um, one day I got... Uh, I heard my name over the PA system. I was being summoned by Mark. I went into his office, and my my Brath Art team was all there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sitting like they were at the principal's office. And Mark started yelling at me about Brath being hairy. And I said, "He's hairy." And he goes, "He's he goes now Italians are hairy." He goes, "He's supposed to be Irish or Scottish. They're not hairy." And I said, "Well, I'm three quarters Scots Irish and a quarter Cher." Indian, don't make me take my shirt off. <laughs> and he threw me out of the office. Uh, <laughs> but Brath remained hairy. So it was a victory. Yeah, yeah. I, I won a few times. I won a few times. You know, Mark, Mark was, um, he's unusual. I, I still like Mark. Uh, a lot of people didn't like him once they left the company. They blamed him for everything. And I was, I saw, he tried. He had some great ideas. They didn't work out. You know, the great ideas without the right execution. His heart was in the right place. And he yelled a lot, but I haven't worked for a comic book publisher yet to yell a lot. So it's not that he can't be singled out for unusual behavior. I mean, I've been I've been screwed over by more comic book publishers than I can count. And uh, But I didn't feel I was ever screwed over by Mark. Uh, I'd lock horns with him, but in the end, we could come to some kind of common ground. I, I don't want to make, and my point is, I don't want to make it sound like I'm dissing the guy because I'm not. I, I enjoyed the time there, even though it all went down in flames. Um, what was it like working on Sigil? Because I've always wondered, because that was a book I did enjoy. Um, you came on, I guess, midway through the run. Yeah, I think Barbara had started that. I think and so. Did, did, did Mark Wade? I think Mark Wade wrote a few issues, and then I came on, and I just treated it like a space opera. Um, did you like Sam and Del Rey as a character? Yeah, yeah, he was fun. He was kind of filling the blank cardboard guy. Uh, so I surrounded him with interesting, more interesting characters. Hmm. Uh, you know, so, which is what you do on a book like that. Um, you know, uh, but I, but I liked him. You know, uh, but you know, it's hard to take an iconic because Crosshand had so many iconic characters like that. It, it's it was hard to take that you know ultimate hero kind of guy that that Crosshand was built around and and make them you know, more interesting. So, uh, I concentrate on the situations and the suspense and the, the supporting cast. Yeah. And, um, what was it like kind of building up to, again, like, I guess, Krashen's first event. I mean, you didn't, you weren't writing the event, but you were still kind of leading up to the negation war concept, especially because you were yeah. writing Crux as well. Yeah. I, Tony Bedard was the, in the driver's seat on that one. And I just followed his lead, you know, Hey, this mention and that mention. Okay, fine. You know, and then, you know, it's just up to me to come up with an you know, interesting and traumatic way to present it, not just, you know, yap, 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 here's what's, you know, here's what you need to know. Uh, so I just followed his lead on that, you know, because that was his thing. And, and I wanted to help him, you know, I wanted to help him build it to be, and it was you know, very cool what he was doing. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of neat because we all, there was a process before a book went off to the printer, uh, it would be reviewed by, um, by the other writers and the team that worked on it. 
So we would have two courses where everybody would actually sit down around a table and, and read through the book. Wow. And, uh, and, it, and it, 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 by doing that, it was a brilliant idea. You would, you would catch mistakes. Um, and then it would also, but it also would familiarize yourself with what everyone else was doing. You made sure that you read every book that was at CrossGen so that you knew what was going on. So I kind of knew, you know, what Tony was doing and what direction he was heading in. And I wanted to help, you know. So, so I, I filled in those blanks. It's interesting because it basically sounds like a TV t- table read, right? Yeah, very much so. You know, but after the fact, but you know, there was still time to go back and, and change things. Um, but you know, you'd be surprised how many lettering mistakes would make it through five people. You know, and the sixth person would catch it. Um, now, you you did a, uh, a one shot that I've always um, held in high esteem and really enjoyed, which was uh, the uh, Ruse Archard's Agents. The case of the puzzled pugilist. <laughs> they were fun. They were a lot of fun. We had a, uh, a we had a, another one of them that was set in um, India. Well, what would have been India in the cross gen universe? Uh, the Perkins and I were going to do. We never got to. That uh, I, that's I a shame. Really, I was really happy with, but you know, there was a lot of stuff I did at cross gen never see the light of day. But yeah, that, those one shots were great. I, I don't know whose idea they were. But yeah, I don't know. When they got mentioned at a meeting. I said, "Well, you know, let me add them." And Perkins wanted to uh, begin uh, showing what he could do as a pencil as well as an inker, um, and they were the perfect vehicle. No, it was it was. Uh, I mean, like I the whole ruse concept I really enjoyed, but then yeah, that that particular one shot was great, and Perkins' art was like amazing. Like it, it just looked so good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. Um, Again, you know, because the two of us were together, you know, and, and able to like go out to lunch and talk about these things, you know, um, it was a more of a direct collaboration. You know, I always like to to write what the artist wants and write to their strengths, and but getting to actually know the person, you know, and get an understanding of who they are, it really it, it, it made those books more special. Um, and we had, I guess, one last question from uh, the listeners. Um. Oh, I had it and then I lost it. <laughs> that sounds about right. Uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Um, were you originally going to take on Captain America? Yes, I, I. When when they did that Heroes Reborn, where they basically gave the keys to the kingdom to the Image guys for a few months, uh, Rob Liefeld wanted me to do Captain America, and I wrote a plot line. I wrote basically not even a plot line. I basically wrote a scenario of what I was going to do with the book. And I never heard back from him. And then one day my fax machine comes to life and here comes all these pages. He, he just worked off of a three-page scenario and the artwork was god-awful. And I called them even before the last pages came out and, and quit. Uh, I said, I don't, I, don't want to do, I, don't, I don't want any money. I don't want anything. I don't want my name on this book, which they put it on anyway. Uh, it was like a special thanks. A special thanks to me. <laughs> Uh, and I said, I just don't want any part of this. So that that was my experience with Captain America. Do you ever wish you get a second shot at it? Yeah, it would have been fun. I love Cap, and I love the whole World War II thing. I mean, it would have been great because you know what it did was it gave it, the opportunity was there to go back and um, uh, basically do what the first movie did, like let's just like super dramatize the, that story, you know, of, of his origin and Bucky and all the rest of it. You know, give it room to breathe. That you know, 
Simon and Kirby and, and Stan Lee and Kirby never had. I mean, nothing against them. They were producing awesome comics, but it's not like they had lots of room to explore stuff mm. that, that, that we would have had the, the opportunity to do. But, um, my God, I, I did better drawings of airplanes on the back of my loose-leaf book in elementary school. So I didn't want to be part of it. I, I, really, want to, I really want my name on quality stuff, uh, you know, so that, that can, you know, I turned down a crazy page rate, but I couldn't have my name on that. Have you, now, have you done any work with Rob Liefeld before? Yeah, I've done some issues of... What the heck was the name of that book? Yeah, that's how, that's how much of an impression it made on me. Yeah, he had some book. I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember. Stephen, Stephen Platt did the artwork on it. And I, can, I can't for the life of me remember it. Okay. And I think I had done one other thing for him. So, yeah, not, yeah, just, you know, that the whole image experience just seems so wacky to me. You know, they're, they're sort of rejection of the idea that these stories need to be written by someone, you know, with some talent, you know. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. You'd read the books and it's like, these are like lame satires of Marvel Comics. You know, they don't have a life of their own. One last question, I guess, just to round us off. Um, recently, DC started putting out a lot more collections of the, kind of the 90s kind of Bat Family material, in particular, uh, more collections of your Nightwing run. Uh, I think uh, one volume is already out. The second volume is solicited, so is the third. The Robin volume is coming out soon, um, which is going to be exposing, hopefully, new audiences to your takes on these characters. Uh, how does it make you feel about, you know, that being able to reach a new audience with these stories that you wrote like 20 years ago? Well, I mean, that's, you know, I like to think the stuff's still being read. Um, you know, it makes me feel good to see them collecting it. I mean, somebody there must think it's worthwhile. And, you know, I imagine that um, the first Nightwing volume did well enough. Maybe maybe they got feedback, you know, because they're doing Birds of Prey as well. So they're pretty much going through the highlights of my 90s stuff <laughs> actually revisiting all of it yeah I, had, I hadn't actually realized that. I guess you're right the Birds of Prey is coming out soon too yeah yeah so they you know apparently they're strong sellers for them and um, I, 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 I want to think that it's uh, a result of um, because th- everything at DC is available digitally which is very democratic because you basically get to vote with your 99 cents or whatever, mm-hmm. which comic you want to see. And um, I know from my royalty statements, all the digital stuff, that they're selling a lot of my stuff. So, you know, maybe maybe they're looking at the sort of Netflix business model of, you know, hey, they're ordering a lot of this guy. Maybe we should reprint this stuff. So maybe, maybe that sparked it. I can't imagine what would have sparked it, but all of a sudden now, like, Especially in the fall, there's going to be a lot of my stuff available again. Yeah, which I have is it very all. Gratifying. I'm pretty sure I have it all in pre-order. So, oh well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read it. You can uh, you can get the money from it. Hey, hey, I tell you, there's nothing better than earning money while you sleep. It's... <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to do all my pre-orders while you're sleeping. That sounded creepy. Yeah, yeah do it in the middle of the night, and so I can wake up in the morning and go, "Hey, look, look, look at the ranking." Exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, Chuck, thank you very much for joining us today. Certainly. And, uh, yeah, I know you answered a lot of great questions, and, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate it because, again, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, um, obviously since Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., so thank you. 
And I would be I would be remiss in mentioning that uh, look for my my prose novels on Amazon. I'm doing a lot of prose work lately. Absolutely, so, got to show your stuff. Yeah, yeah, I would appreciate the support. So excellent. But no, this was fun. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right, thank you very much for joining us. Have a good night. Okay. Sure. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.